Welcome to this episode of Untreated, the podcast for the Salt Lake County Stormwater Coalition. Today, we're going to be talking about macroinvertebrates as pollution indicators. Uh, with me are uh, Sam Taylor and Greta Hamilton, both from Salt Lake County. Uh, welcome, Sam and Greta. Thanks Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. So, uh, Sam, let's start with you. Give us just a little bit more detail than what I mentioned. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what it is you do with the county. Okay. Um, so I work for, Greta and I are, we do work together, but we actually work for slightly different divisions. So I work on the watershed end of things. Um, and what that means is that I work on the end where we look at long-term changes in water quality and sort of how, not necessarily their effect on human health, but how changes in the valley are changing water quality. Um, so I, in terms of big picture things, thinking like as cities develop and change from uh, non -per, you know, fields to non-permeable surfaces like roads and things like that, we wanna capture how these changes have an effect in the landscape, especially the waterways. Um, so my focus, I have, there's two other peers with the same title as me, but my focus is generally on looking at the actual water quality parameters. So more like the core science than the restoration of things. Uh, wonderful. Great. Uh, so Greta, tell us just a little bit more about your job and what you do. Um, so I work for both the MSD and the unincorporated parts of the county, Salt Lake County, and um, I manage the stormwater permit. And that involves a lot of like dry weather screening, um, outfalls. I'm basically looking at my main focus of concentration is are these areas where the stormwater drains directly into our waterways. Okay, perfect. Okay. And so as we move into this topic, I will just say that this is uh, an episode that is really going to be a little bit more technical, uh, meant for our stormwater professionals, but of course anybody can, can listen. But we also have an episode on the main part of the website that uh, we recorded with um, Hannah Murphy that is more general macroinvertebrates. Okay, so having said that, um, Sam, why don't you tell us just a little bit about uh, how you sample macroinvertebrates and why they are such good pollution indicators? Okay, um, so I'll, I'll start. Some of this may have been covered in the last podcast, but just in case, I'll do a very brief review. Um, we sample every year or attempt to every year sample 50 different sites throughout Salt Lake County. Uh, the majority of those sites are located on the east side of the valley. And the real reason for that is because that's just where there's actually perennial flowing water. If there's not water flowing year round, you, generally, you, you know that your scores are going to be low or poor for macroinvertebrates. Um, but when we sample these bugs, it's not just like we go in and we fill something for water. So a macroinvertebrate, think about a large, like a large bug without vertebrae. So macro means big, big, invertebrate means without vertebrae. That doesn't mean they're huge. We're talking about the same kind of things that fly fishermen use. Um, that's almost exclusively what fly fishermen use actually. Um, so these things, they live in the water for years in some cases, there are thousands of different types. And of these types, let's say, for example, if anyone's heard of a stonefly, even within that stonefly, there are thousands of subspecies. And each of these bugs, they have 
they have very different specific niche or niche that they want to live in, whether that is a temperature gradient, whether that is affected by pH or incoming sediment or high conductivity values. Some might be more sensitive to specific types of toxins. Some can't handle high flows like big flooding waters. So when we get this sample, we'll usually do a stretch of the river um, anywhere from 500 feet to 1,500 feet long, and we'll take 10 different samples in that. And each, at each sample, we fill up a kick net. So we disturb the sediment in the stream, it fills up a net, and then we collect everything that's caught in this net at the end into a bucket. Um, and, you know, you might not think there's many bugs, but we, in one of these samples, we're getting thousands of bugs a lot of the time. And we preserve all these bugs, we mail them off to a lab, to a specialist who figures out exactly each subspecies. And he can use a lot of these to figure out Let's say we have a specific type of stone or stonefly present that can't live in water with a pH above 8.5. That's just an example. But we would know that in the life of this bug, let's say it's a year and a half lifespan, the water quality never went above 9 or 8.5 pH. So we start to use these to build our monitors. It does the same thing for temperature. It does the same thing for flooding. Um, and each bug has independent things that we call stressors. So stressors is the general term we like to use. Um, I've covered kind of a lot of information there, um, but the idea is that these bugs live in a wide variety of conditions and some can't live there. So we're looking at what is present and then alternatively also what is not present gives us sort of a makeup of our stream health over time. Um, over time is really important, be, important because we do go to creeks and, sick, and stick like water quality sawns in to figure out what's going on then, but that doesn't really tell us about our storms or low water times or high water times. Um, these give us a much longer timetable for what's happening in our rivers. And then I, I know that just uh, generally speaking, the, the higher up in the watershed, the colder, I guess, the water is, the less um, impact from human activity, uh, those things tend to skew favorably towards some of those pretty intolerant, pollution intolerant species um, of, of macroinvertebrates. Do they, do they not, Sam? They absolutely do. So this is, this is a bad generalization. This is not necessarily scientific, but we often think about the I-215 corridor of the mountains. Um, so where I-215 loops through the valley, as soon as you get downstream of that, so downstream towards the Jordan River through the valley, you have lost a lot of the genetic makeup of our creeks when it comes to macroinvertebrates. Um, I actually have in front of me here, and I know it's hard without visuals, but I have all of our samples from our most recent macroinvertebrate macro run in Mill Creek. And there are five, let's see, six sites in Mill Creek proper. The upper ones have some of our best ratings and those are still only in the good range. They're not great compared to this national scale. Um, and so that's in the upper canyon. And then as you move down to the mouth of the canyon, you actually start to get into the poor range. So if you think about a, you know, a color scale from green, yellow, red, purple, we've gone from greenish yellow to red at the mouth of the canyon. And then by the time you get to the city, it is just poor. We are, we are, we are seeing too many stressors on these bugs. So downstream um, in our valley definitely indicates decreasing water quality. Okay, wonderful. And we do have the um, opportunity in the uh, description section of this uh, segment, this episode to um, uh, put any um, uh, links or uh, 
you know, a PDF file or something along those lines. So if there's anything um, after this is over, Sam, you want to give me, we'll get it up there on that. So folks, when you're done listening to this today, if you haven't already, look, go back to the um, to the link slide and, and see if they're in the description, maybe uh, some additional material that we can reference. Yeah, okay, we'll, so, we'll, we'll get a map up there. Good, so. perfect. So then moving on a little bit, um, uh, there's a nice tie-in here to stormwater pollution and to the work that Greta does because I guess the, the further down we get into the watershed, the more human activity, the more stressors there are on those those macros. Is that right, uh, Sam? How, do, how does that kind of play in? And let's bring Greta into this conversation. Sure, and I, I don't see anything. Maybe this is a good segue to you, Greta, sorry. Um, but the, the stressors I'm thinking of are specifically thermal, um, nutrient enrichment, toxins, and then um, sediment. Those, those yeah. are the things we see up here as we get into the city. The other thing I would add to that would be DO. Okay. DO being <clears throat> dissolved oxygen, yeah. Dissolved oxygen, sorry. Um, but like you guys are saying, um, other than atmospheric or wind deposition, natural water should be relatively pollution-free. Um, most pollutants come from human sources, and they're a large portion of those are directed into our streams from, from stormwater runoff. And I think a lot of people forget too that stormwater is not treated before it enters the streams. And these macros are able to show us um, the effects of long-term and short-term pollution events. And they can very clearly tell us when a stream ecosystem is impaired, they're stationary. So they're super sensitive to different degrees of pollution, like Sam was saying. Um, changes in their abundance and variety vividly illustrates the impact that uh, pollution is having on these guys. The thermal stressors, it's pretty straightforward. The more impervious surfaces there are, the more heat those surfaces absorb. And when the storm comes through, the water picks up that heat. And as it flows over the rooftops, parking lots, roadways, it causes a temporary fluctuation in the in-stream water temperature which degrades cold water ecosystems, which is what most fish require to survive. Um, it's it's kind of common knowledge that macroinvertebrate indices decrease with increasing imperviousness. Um, heat also lowers DO, so does salinity, which, so when we're doing our um, winter salting and stuff, that is affecting the DO. Um, and then, the thing with dissolved oxygen is that every animal that lives in water, including the macros, require oxygen to survive. <clears throat> when there's a lot of organic waste in the stream, the, um, the microorganisms multiply and use up more oxygen that can be replaced in the stream. So like um, stonefly nymphs, they're very sensitive to most pollutants and they can't survive if a stream's dissolved oxygen falls below a certain level. Um, those are pretty good indicator bugs for that. Um, nutrient enrichment, um, the, the principal nutrients of concern in urban stormwater is nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, nitrogen is mostly found in the form of ammonia, ammonia nitrogen, and it's, it's the most readily toxic to aquatic life. It's, uh, it, it triggers the excessive growth of algae that leads to like the algae blooms and eutrophic conditions and I know Sam has been doing some work with the, the Habs people too. Um, and he could probably elaborate a little bit more on that than I could. 
Um, and then as far as toxins go, I mean, that's anything dumped or dropped on the ground or in the gutter, it, it can wind up in the water. Um, petroleum hydrocarbons, those are big ones and those come from our cars. Heavy metals, um, the heavy metals, especially like copper, lead, zinc, are, they're by far the most prevalent priority pollutants um, in urban runoff. And uh, <clears throat> regular metals, just they, they can cause acute, acute, sorry, acute or chronic impacts for the aquatic life. And then probably like Sam was saying, the most important one is the sediments. Um, it, it's one of the top causes of river and stream impairment. Um, the impervious surfaces, they, um, as they increase, so does the volume of stormwater. And that volume of stormwater um, creates a higher velocity and causes stream bank erosion. So, and it's coming from construction sites and um, industrial activities, but the EPA regulates those. So they're not quite as big of a concern as like the stuff we've got going on at our house. Um, sediments also increase turbidity. They reduce the penetration of light. Um, they, they basically alter and eventually will destroy fish habitats. Um, and then of course, like you can imagine, they clog the gills of macros and fish. And with the loss of macros, you also lose populations of fish that survive on those macros. Um, so yeah, that's, that was a whole lot of mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it seems to me that, that everything you guys are talking about are the things that, that stormwater professionals are so concerned about. So obviously the, um, the using macros as an indicator of water quality is probably important throughout the watershed, but I would imagine that it probably is even, it, it is even more so as you get into the more urbanized areas, as you get west of I-215. Is that, would that be kind of a fair way of saying that, Sam? Is... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely would be a fair way of saying it. We, one thing that we look at and this, it's really hard to tie this together because water is a flowing thing is also areas where we still have a riparian buffer. Um, buffers is a very, it's not something that I really wanna talk about right now because it's a whole nother conversation, but you can use passive treatment to, to stop a lot of these things from entering the stream and it works well. Stormwater is a good example of if you have great stormwater infrastructure in place, you can do a lot to reduce this, this everyday thing coming into the stream. Um, but that infrastructure is really dependent on so many other factors too. There's maintenance involved, there's follow-up, there's mm -hmm. the size of the storm, there's all these other things. But generally speaking, when we get into these more industrial areas, we just see our scores really do just plummet. I think we did a study, this is a long time ago, this is actually before my time, but we lost something like 60% of, of the genetic diversity of the stream in week from the mouth of the canyon to about half mile downstream. And I might have some of those numbers off a little bit, but that's still, that's halving the genetic diversity of what we, diversity of what we see in the stream. It's, it's pretty quick how this stuff happens. So as kind of a parting shot here uh, to both, both of you, um, as you know, as a, as a stormwater technician or uh, a, an engineer for a city uh, for stormwater, what, why should, why should I really be 
concerned about macroinvertebrates, what are a couple of takeaways you'd love for, for these folks to have? Greta, you Sam, want to take a stab at that? Um, yeah. Sure. sure. Yeah, Greta, you go first. How about that? Okay. Um, <laughs> I was going to say one of the biggest things probably with any, with a lot of the pollutants is, is a lot of them bioaccumulate. So if it's in the macros, it's going into the fish. I mean, we are one of the few places with a mercury advisory for ducks. Like you're not supposed to eat a certain amount of ducks that you catch because we, the mercury has gone through the systems. It's by accumulated so much that it's not safe to eat. So when we're ingesting, whatever they're ingesting is making its way into us. Um. And then the thing that I would add that, and this is kind of, I almost wish that I said this at the beginning, if there was a big takeaway, is that a lot of what these macroinvertebrates show us is what has already happened. So I'm, as, as much as it's not great to say, the, this data we collect is showing us that we have a problem and fixing the problem is so much harder than preventing it from happening. Um, it, it really is kind of putting the cart before the horse sometimes. And I know that's it's a little bit depressing to think about, but these areas that have poor genetic diversity, it's not like we can just stop the input of chemicals and make everything better. This is, this is something we want to preserve actively where it's good and then work really hard to repair it if we value that, which I think we generally do. I mean, this is where we live. These areas are proving to be a huge asset to every community that's by them. If you ask anyone who lives by a river, at least that's what they seem to tell us, so. Well said, Sam, that was spot on. And, and it seemed, yeah, and I would think that even though it's very hard to fix the problem once it exists, um, I would imagine that, that, that things that can be done within communities, such as uh, various types of low impact development, um, uh, you know, swales and those kind of things, uh, retention, detention types of, of technology, I imagine would all help eventually. Absolutely. Try right? As we try to repair mm -hmm. this quality. Yes, okay, wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for your time today. It's been uh, really uh, enlightening to me. I learned a lot and I hopefully everybody else will as well. So uh, once again, thank you to Sam Taylor and Greta Hamilton, both from Salt Lake County. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next time on Untreated. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Talk to you soon.